Companies have also tried to establish social norms with their employees. It wasn't always this way. Years ago, the workforce of America was more of an industrial, market-driven exchange. Back then, it was often a nine-to-five, time-clock kind of mentality. You put in your 40 hours and you got your paycheck on Friday. Since workers were paid by the hour, they knew exactly when they were working for the man and when they weren't. The factory whistle blew, or the corporate equivalent took place, and the transaction was finished. This was a clear market exchange, and it worked adequately for both sides. Today, companies see an advantage in creating a social exchange. After all, in today's market, we're the makers of intangibles. Creativity counts more than industrial machines. The partition between work and leisure has likewise blurred. The people who run the workplace want us to think about work while we're driving home and while we're in the shower. They've given us laptops, cell phones and blackberries to bridge the gap between the workplace and home. Further blurring the 9-to-5 workday is the trend in many companies to move away from hourly rates to monthly pay. In this 24-7 work environment, social norms have a great advantage. They tend to make employees passionate, hard-working, flexible and concerned. In a market where employees' loyalty to their employers is often wilting, social norms are one of the best ways to make workers loyal as well as motivated. Open-source software shows the potential of social norms. In the case of Linux and other collaborative projects, you can post a problem about a bug on one of the bulletin boards and see how fast someone, or often many people, will react to your request and fix the software using their own leisure time. Could you pay for this level of service? Most likely. But if you had to hire people of the same calibre, they would cost you an arm and a leg. Rather, people in these communities are happy to give their time to society at large, for which they get the same social benefits we all get from helping a friend paint a room. What can we learn from this that is applicable to the business world? There are social rewards that strongly motivate behaviour, and one of the least used in corporate life is the encouragement of social rewards and reputation. In treating their employees, much as in treating their customers, companies must understand their implied long-term commitment. If employees promise to work harder to achieve an important deadline, even cancelling family obligations for it, if they are asked to get on an aeroplane at a moment's notice to attend a meeting, then they must get something similar in return, something like support when they are sick, or a chance to hold on to their jobs when the market threatens to take their jobs away. Although some companies have been successful in creating social norms with their workers, the current obsession with short-term profits, outsourcing and draconian cost-cutting threatens to undermine it all. In a social exchange, after all, people believe that if something goes awry, the other party will be there for them, to protect and help them. These beliefs are not spelled out in a contract, but they are general obligations to provide care and help in times of need. Again, companies cannot have it both ways. In particular, I am worried that the recent cuts we see in employees' benefits – childcare, pensions, flex time, exercise rooms, the cafeteria, family picnics, etc. – are likely to come at the expense of the social exchange and thus affect workers' productivity. I am particularly worried that cuts and changes in medical benefits are likely to transform much of the employer-employee social relationship to a market relationship. If companies want to benefit from the advantages of social norms, they need to do a better job of cultivating those norms. 
Medical benefits, and in particular comprehensive medical coverage, are among the best ways a company can express its side of the social exchange. But what are many companies doing? They are demanding high deductibles in their insurance plans, and at the same time are reducing the scope of benefits. Simply put, they are undermining the social contract between the company and the employees, and replacing it with market norms. As companies tilt the board and employees slide from social norms to the realm of market norms, can we blame them for jumping ship when a better offer appears? It's really no surprise that corporate loyalty, in terms of the loyalty of employees to their companies, has become an oxymoron. Organisations can also think consciously about how people react to social and market norms. Should you give an employee a gift worth $1,000 or pay him or her an extra $1,000 in cash? Which is better? If you ask the employees, the majority will most likely prefer cash over the gift. But the gift has its value, though this is sometimes ill-understood. It can provide a boost to the social relationship between the employer and the employee, and by doing so provide long-term benefits to everyone. Think of it this way. Who do you suppose is likely to work harder, show more loyalty, and truly love his work more? Someone who is getting $1,000 in cash, or someone who is getting a personal gift? Of course, a gift is a symbolic gesture, and to be sure, no one is going to work for gifts rather than a salary. For that matter, no one is going to work for nothing. But if you look at companies like Google, which offers a wide variety of benefits for employees, including free gourmet lunches, you can see how much goodwill is created by emphasising the social side of the company-worker relationship. It's remarkable how much work companies, particularly startups, can get out of people when social norms, such as the excitement of building something together, are stronger than market norms, such as salaries stepping up with each promotion. If corporations started thinking in terms of social norms, they would realise that these norms build loyalty, and more important, make people want to extend themselves to the degree that corporations need today, to be flexible, concerned and willing to pitch in. That's what a social relationship delivers. This question of social norms in the workplace is one we should be thinking about frequently. America's productivity depends increasingly on the talent and efforts of its workers, could it be that we are driving business from the realm of social norms into market norms? Are workers thinking in terms of money rather than the social values of loyalty and trust? What will that do to American productivity in the long run, in terms of creativity and commitment? And what of the social contract between government and the citizen? Is that at risk as well? At some level, we all know the answers. We understand, for instance, that a salary alone will not motivate people to risk their lives. Police officers, firefighters, soldiers, they don't die for their weekly pay. It's the social norms, pride in their profession and a sense of duty, that will motivate them to give up their lives and health. A friend of mine in Miami once accompanied a U.S. customs agent on a patrol of the offshore waters. The agent carried an assault rifle and could certainly have pounded several holes into a fleeing drug boat. But had he ever done so? No way, he replied. He wasn't about to get himself killed for the government salary he received. In fact, he confided, his group had an unspoken agreement with the drug couriers. The feds wouldn't fire if the drug dealers didn't fire. 
Perhaps that's why we rarely, if ever, hear about gun battles on the edges of America's war on drugs. How could we change this situation? First, we could make the federal salary so good that the customs agent would be willing to risk his life for it. But how much money is that? Compensation equal to what the typical drug trafficker gets for racing a boat from the Bahamas to Miami? Alternatively, we could elevate the social norm, making the officer feel that his mission is worth more than his base pay, that we honour him, as we honour our police and firefighters, for a job which not only stabilises the structure of society, but also saves our kids from all kinds of dangers. That would take some inspirational leadership, of course, but it could be done. Let me describe how that same thought applies to the world of education. I recently joined a federal committee on incentives and accountability in public education. This is one aspect of social and market norms that I would like to explore in the years to come. Our task is to re-examine the No Child Left Behind policy and to help find ways to motivate students, teachers, administrators and parents. My feeling so far is that standardised testing and performance-based salaries are likely to push education from social norms to market norms. The United States already spends more money per student than any other Western society. Would it be wise to add more money? The same consideration applies to testing. We are already testing very frequently, and more testing is unlikely to improve the quality of education. I suspect that one answer lies in the realm of social norms. As we learned in our experiments, cash will take you only so far. Social norms are the forces that can make a difference in the long run. Instead of focusing the attention of the teachers, parents and kids on test scores, salaries and competition, it might be better to instill in all of us a sense of purpose, mission and pride in education. To do this, we certainly can't take the path of market norms. The Beatles proclaimed some time ago that you can't buy me love, and this also applies to the love of learning. You can't buy it, and if you try, you might chase it away. So how can we improve the educational system? We should probably first rethink school curricula and link them in more obvious ways to social goals, elimination of poverty and crime, elevation of human rights, etc., technological goals, boosting energy conservation, space exploration, nanotechnology, etc., and medical goals, cures for cancer, diabetes, obesity, etc., that we care about as a society. This way, the students, teachers and parents might see the larger point in education and become more enthusiastic and motivated about it. We should also work hard on making education a goal in itself and stop confusing the number of hours students spend in school with the quality of the education they get. Kids can get excited about many things, baseball for example, and it is our challenge as a society to make them want to know as much about Nobel laureates as they now know about baseball players. I am not suggesting that igniting a social passion for education is simple, but if we succeed in doing so, the value could be immense. Money, as it turns out, is very often the most expensive way to motivate people. Social norms are not only cheaper, but often more effective as well. So what good is money? In ancient times, money made trading easier. You didn't have to sling a goose over your back when you went to market or decide what section of the goose was equivalent to a head of lettuce. 
In modern times, money has even more benefits, as it allows us to specialise, borrow and save. But money has also taken on a life of its own. As we have seen, it can remove the best in human interactions. So do we need money? Of course we do. But could there be some aspects of our life that would be, in some ways, better without it? That's a radical idea, and not an easy one to imagine. But a few years ago, I had a taste of it. At that time, I got a phone call from John Perry Barlow, a former lyricist for The Grateful Dead, inviting me to an event that proved to be both an important personal experience and an interesting exercise in creating a moneyless society. Barlow told me that I had to come to Burning Man with him, and that if I did, I would feel as if I had come home. Burning Man is an annual week-long event of self-expression and self-reliance held in Black Rock Desert, Nevada, regularly attended by more than 40,000 people. Burning Man started in 1986 on Baker Beach in San Francisco, when a small crowd designed, built, and eventually set fire to an eight-foot wooden statue of a man and a smaller wooden dog. Since then, the size of the man being burned and the number of people who attend the festivities has grown considerably, and the event is now one of the largest art festivals and an ongoing experiment in temporary community. Burning Man has many extraordinary aspects, but for me, one of the most remarkable is its rejection of market norms. Money is not accepted at Burning Man. Rather, the whole place works as a gift exchange economy. You give things to other people, with the understanding that they will give something back to you, or to someone else, at some point in the future. Thus, people who can cook might fix a meal. Psychologists offer free counselling sessions. Masseuses massage those lying on tables before them. Those who have water offer showers. People give away drinks, homemade jewellery, and hugs. I made some puzzles at the hobby shop at MIT and gave them to people. Mostly, people enjoyed trying to solve them. At first, this was all very strange. But before long, I found myself adopting the norms of Burning Man. I was surprised, in fact, to find that Burning Man was the most accepting, social and caring place I had ever been. I'm not sure I could easily survive in Burning Man for all 52 weeks of the year. But this experience has convinced me that life with fewer market norms and more social norms would be more satisfying, creative, fulfilling and fun. The answer, I believe, is not to recreate society as Burning Man, but to remember that social norms can play a far greater role in society than we have been giving them credit for. If we contemplate how market norms have gradually taken over our lives in the past few decades, with their emphasis on higher salaries, more income and more spending, we may recognise that a return to some of the old social norms might not be so bad after all. In fact, it might bring quite a bit of the old civility back to our lives. Chapter 5. The Influence of Arousal. Why hot is much hotter than we realise. Ask most 20-something male college students whether they would ever attempt unprotected sex, and they will quickly recite chapter and verse about the risk of dreaded diseases and pregnancy. Ask them in any dispassionate circumstances, while they are doing homework or listening to a lecture, whether they'd enjoy being spanked or enjoy sex in a threesome with another man, and they'll wince. No way, they'd tell you. Furthermore, they'd narrow their eyes at you and think, 
What kind of sicko are you anyhow, asking these questions in the first place? In 2001, while I was visiting Berkeley for the year, my friend, academic hero and longtime collaborator George Lowenstein and I invited a few bright students to help us understand the degree to which rational, intelligent people can predict how their attitudes will change when they are in an impassioned state. In order to make this study realistic, we needed to measure the participants' responses while they were smack in the midst of such an emotional state. We could have made our participants feel angry or hungry, frustrated or annoyed, but we preferred to have them experience a pleasurable emotion. We chose to study decision-making under sexual arousal, not because we had kinky predilections ourselves, but because understanding arousal's impact on behaviour might help society grapple with some of its most difficult problems, such as teen pregnancy and the spread of HIV-AIDS. There are sexual motivations everywhere we look, and yet we understand very little about how these influence our decision-making. Moreover, since we wanted to understand whether participants would be able to predict how they would behave in a particular emotional state, the emotion needed to be one that was already quite familiar to them. That made our decision easy. If there's anything predictable and familiar about 20-something male college students, it's the regularity with which they experience sexual arousal. Roy, an affable, studious biology major at Berkeley, is in a sweat, and not over finals. Propped up in the single bed of his darkened dorm room, he's masturbating rapidly with his right hand. With his left, he's using a one-handed keyboard to manipulate a saran-wrapped laptop computer. As he idles through pictures of buxom naked women lolling around in various erotic poses, his heart pounds ever more loudly in his chest. As he becomes increasingly excited, Roy adjusts the arousal meter on the computer screen upward. As he reaches the bright red high zone, a question pops up on the screen. Could you enjoy sex with someone you hated? Roy moves his left hand to a scale that ranges from no to yes and taps his answer. The next question appears. Would you slip a woman a drug to increase the chance that she would have sex with you? Again, Roy selects his answer and a new question pops up. Would you always use a condom? Berkeley itself is a dichotomous place. It was a site of anti-establishment riots in the 1960s, and people in the Bay Area snarkily refer to the famously left-of-center city as the People's Republic of Berkeley. But the large campus itself draws a surprisingly conformist population of top-level students. In a survey of incoming freshmen in 2004, only 51.2% of the respondents thought of themselves as liberal. More than one-third, 36%, deemed their views middle-of-the-road, and 12% claimed to be conservatives. To my surprise, when I arrived at Berkeley, I found that the students were in general not very wild, rebellious, or likely to take risks. The ads we posted around Sproul Plaza read as follows. Wanted. Male research participants. Heterosexual. 18 years plus. For a study on decision-making and arousal. The ad noted that the experimental sessions would demand about an hour of the participants' time, that the participants would be paid $10 per session, and that the experiments could involve sexually arousing material. Those interested in applying could respond to Mike, the research assistant, by email. For this study, we decided to seek out only men. In terms of sex, their wiring is a lot simpler than that of women. As we concluded, 
after much discussion among ourselves and our assistants, both male and female. A copy of Playboy and a darkened room was about all we'd need for a high degree of success. Another concern was getting the project approved at MIT's Sloan School of Management, where I had my primary appointment. This was an ordeal in itself. Before allowing the research to begin, Dean Richard Schmalency assigned a committee, consisting mostly of women, to examine the project. This committee had several concerns. What if a participant uncovered repressed memories of sexual abuse as a result of the research? Suppose a participant found that he or she was a sex addict? Their questions seemed unwarranted to me, since any college student with a computer and an internet connection can get hold of the most graphic pornography imaginable. Although the business school was stymied by this, I was fortunate to have a position at MIT's Media Lab as well, and Walter Bender, who was the head of the lab, happily approved the project. I was on my way. But my experience with MIT's Sloan School made it clear that even half a century after Kinsey, and despite its substantial importance, sex is still largely a taboo subject for a study, at least at some institutions. In any case, our ads went out, and college men being what they are, we soon had a long list of hearty fellows awaiting the chance to participate, including Roy. Roy, in fact, was typical of most of the 25 participants in our study. Born and raised in San Francisco, he was accomplished, intelligent and kind, the kind of kid every prospective mother-in-law dreams of. Roy played Chopin études on the piano and liked to dance to techno music. He had earned straight A's throughout high school, where he was captain of the varsity volleyball team. He sympathised with libertarians and tended to vote Republican. Friendly and amiable, he had a steady girlfriend who he'd been dating for a year. He planned to go to medical school and had a weakness for spicy California roll sushi and for the salads at Café Intermezzo. Roy met with our student research assistant, Mike, at Strada Coffee Shop, Berkeley's patio-style percolator for many an intellectual thought, including the idea for the solution to Fermat's last theorem. Mike was slender and tall, with short hair, an artistic air, and an engaging smile. Mike shook hands with Roy, and they sat down. Thanks for answering our ad, Roy, Mike said, pulling out a few sheets of paper and placing them on the table. First, let's go over the consent forms. Mike intoned the ritual decree. The study was about decision-making and sexual arousal. Participation was voluntary. Data would be confidential. Participants had the right to contact the committee in charge of protecting the rights of those participating in experiments, and so on. Roy nodded and nodded. You couldn't find a more agreeable participant. You can stop the experiment at any time, Mike concluded. Everything understood? Yes, Roy said. He grabbed a pen and signed. Mike shook his hand. Great. Mike took a cloth bag out of his knapsack. Here's what's going to happen. He unwrapped an Apple iBook computer and opened it up. In addition to the standard keyboard, Roy saw a 12-key multicolored keypad. It's a specially equipped computer, Mike explained. Please use only this keypad to respond. He touched the keys on the colored pad. We'll give you a code to enter, and this code will let you start the experiment. During the session, you'll be asked a series of questions to which you can answer on a scale ranging between no and yes. If you think you would like the activity described in the question, answer yes. And if you think you would not, answer no. Remember that you're being asked to predict how you would behave and what kind of activities you would like when aroused. Roy nodded. 
We'll ask you to sit on your bed and set the computer up on a chair on the left side of your bed, in clear sight and reach of your bed, Mike went on. Place the keyboard next to you so that you can use it without any difficulty, and be sure you're alone. Roy's eyes twinkled a little. When you finish with the session, email me and we will meet again and you'll get your ten bucks. Mike didn't tell Roy about the questions themselves. The session started by asking Roy to imagine that he was sexually aroused and to answer all the questions as he would if he were aroused. One set of questions asked about sexual preferences. Would he, for example, find women's shoes erotic? Could he imagine being attracted to a 50-year-old woman? Could it be fun to have sex with someone who was extremely fat? Could having sex with someone he hated be enjoyable? Would it be fun to get tied up or to tie someone else up? Could just kissing be frustrating? A second set of questions asked about the likelihood of engaging in immoral behaviours such as date rape. Would Roy tell a woman that he loved her to increase the chance that she would have sex with him? Would he encourage a date to drink to increase the chance that she would have sex with him? Would he keep trying to have sex after a date had said no? A third set of questions asked about Roy's likelihood of engaging in behaviours related to unsafe sex. Does a condom decrease sexual pleasure? Would he always use a condom if he didn't know the sexual history of a new sexual partner? Would he use a condom even if he was afraid that a woman might change her mind while he went to get it? A few days later, having answered the questions in his cold, rational state, Roy met again with Mike. Those were some interesting questions, Roy noted. Yes, I know, Mike said coolly. Kinsey had nothing on us. By the way, we have another set of experimental sessions. Would you be interested in participating again? Roy smiled a little, shrugged, and nodded. Mike shoved a few pages toward him. This time, we're asking you to sign the same consent form, but the next task will be slightly different. The next session will be very much the same as the last one, but this time we want you to get yourself into an excited state by viewing a set of arousing pictures and masturbating. What we want you to do is arouse yourself to a high level, but not to ejaculate. In case you do, though, the computer will be protected. Mike pulled out the Apple iBook. This time the keyboard and the screen were covered with a thin layer of saran wrap. Roy made a face. I didn't know computers could get pregnant. Not a chance, Mike laughed. This one had its tubes tied but we like to keep them clean. Mike explained that Roy would browse through a series of erotic pictures on the computer to help him get to the right level of arousal. Then he would answer the same questions as before. Within three months, some fine Berkeley undergraduate students had undergone a variety of sessions in different orders. In the set of sessions conducted when they were in a cold, dispassionate state, they predicted what their sexual and moral decisions would be if they were aroused. In the set of sessions conducted when they were in a hot, aroused state, they also predicted their decisions. But this time, since they were actually in the grip of passion, they were presumably more aware of their preferences in that state. When the study was completed, the conclusions were consistent and clear. Overwhelmingly clear. Frighteningly clear. In every case, our bright young participants answered the questions very differently when they were aroused than when they were in a cold state. Across the 19 questions about sexual preferences, when Roy and all the other participants were aroused, they predicted that their desire to engage in a variety of somewhat odd sexual activities would be nearly twice as high as, 72% higher than, they had predicted when they were cold. 
For example, the idea of enjoying contact with animals was more than twice as appealing when they were in a state of arousal as when they were in a cold state. In the five questions about their propensity to engage in immoral activities, when they were aroused, they predicted their propensity to be more than twice as high as, 136% higher than, they had predicted in the cold state. Similarly, in the set of questions about using condoms, and despite the warnings that had been hammered into them over the years about the importance of condoms, they were 25% more likely in the aroused state than in the cold state to predict that they would forego condoms. In all these cases, they failed to predict the influence of arousal on their sexual preferences, morality, and approach to safe sex. The results showed that when Roy and the other participants were in a cold, rational, super-ego-driven state, they respected women. They were not particularly attracted to the odd sexual activities we asked them about. They always took the moral high ground, and they expected that they would always use a condom. They thought that they understood themselves, their preferences, and what actions they were capable of. But as it turned out, they completely underestimated their reactions. No matter how we looked at the numbers, it was clear that the magnitude of underprediction by the participants was substantial. Across the board, they revealed in their unaroused state that they themselves did not know what they were like once aroused. Prevention, protection, conservatism and morality disappeared completely from the radar screen. They were simply unable to predict the degree to which passion would change them. These results apply most directly to sexual arousal and its influence on who we are. But we can also assume that other emotional states, anger, hunger, excitement, jealousy and so on, work in similar ways, making us strangers to ourselves. Imagine waking up one morning, looking in the mirror and discovering that someone else, something alien but human, has taken over your body. You're uglier, shorter, hairier. Your lips are thinner. Your incisors are longer. Your nails are filthy. Your face is flatter. Two cold reptilian eyes gaze back at you. You long to smash something, rape someone. You are not you. You are a monster. Beset by this nightmarish vision, Robert Louis Stevenson screamed in his sleep in the early hours of an autumn morning in 1885. Immediately after his wife awoke him, he set to work on what he called a fine bogey tale, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in which he said, Man is not truly one, but truly two. The book was an overnight success, and no wonder. The story captivated the imagination of Victorians, who were fascinated with the dichotomy between repressive propriety, represented by the mild-mannered scientist Dr. Jekyll, and uncontrollable passion embodied in the murderous Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll thought he understood how to control himself, but when Mr. Hyde took over, look out. The story was frightening and imaginative, but it wasn't new. Long before Sophocles' Oedipus Rex and Shakespeare's Macbeth, the war between interior good and evil had been the stuff of myth, religion and literature. In Freudian terms, each of us houses a dark self, an id, a brute that can unpredictably wrest control away from the superego. Thus, a pleasant, friendly neighbour, seized by road rage, crashes his car into a semi. A teenager grabs a gun and shoots his friends. A priest rapes a boy. All these otherwise good people assume that they understand themselves, but in the heat of passion, suddenly, with the flip of some interior switch, everything changes. 
Our experiment at Berkeley revealed not just the old story that we are all like Jekyll and Hyde, but also something new, that every one of us, regardless of how good we are, underpredicts the effect of passion on our behaviour. In every case, the participants in our experiment got it wrong. Even the most brilliant and rational person in the heat of passion seems to be absolutely and completely divorced from the person he thought he was. Moreover, it is not just that people make wrong predictions about themselves. Their predictions are wrong by a large margin. Most of the time, according to the results of the study, Roy is smart, decent, reasonable, kind and trustworthy. His frontal lobes are fully functioning and he is in control of his behaviour. But when he's in a state of sexual arousal and the reptilian brain takes over, he becomes unrecognisable to himself. Roy thinks he knows how he will behave in an aroused state, but his understanding is limited. He doesn't truly understand that as his sexual motivation becomes more intense, he may throw caution to the wind. He may risk sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancies in order to achieve sexual gratification. When he is gripped by passion, his emotions may blur the boundary between what is right and what is wrong. In fact, he doesn't have a clue to how consistently wild he really is, for when he is in one state and tries to predict his behaviour in another state, he gets it wrong. Moreover, the study suggested that our inability to understand ourselves in a different emotional state does not seem to improve with experience. We get it wrong, even if we spend as much time in this state as our Berkeley students spent sexually aroused. Sexual arousal is familiar, personal, very human and utterly commonplace. Even so, we all systematically underpredict the degree to which arousal completely negates our super-ego and the way emotions can take control of our behaviour. What happens then, when our irrational self comes alive in an emotional place that we think is familiar, but in fact is unfamiliar? If we fail to really understand ourselves, is it possible to somehow predict how we or others will behave when out of our heads, when we're really angry, hungry, frightened, or sexually aroused? Is it possible to do something about this? The answers to these questions are profound, for they indicate that we must be wary of situations in which our Mr. Hyde may take over. When the boss criticises us publicly, we might be tempted to respond with a vehement email. But wouldn't we be better off putting our reply in the draft folder for a few days? When we are smitten by a sports car after a test drive with the wind in our hair, shouldn't we take a break and discuss our spouse's plan to buy a minivan before signing a contract to buy the car? Here are a few more examples of ways to protect ourselves from ourselves. Safe sex. Many parents and teenagers, while in a cold, rational Dr. Jekyll state, tend to believe that the mere promise of abstinence, commonly known as just say no, is sufficient protection against sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancies. Assuming that this level-headed thought will prevail even when emotions reach the boiling point, the advocates of just saying no see no reason to carry a condom with them. But as our study shows, in the heat of passion, we are all in danger of switching from just say no to yes in a heartbeat, and if no condom is available, we are likely to say yes regardless of the dangers. What does this suggest? First, widespread availability of condoms is essential. 
we should not decide in a cool state whether or not to bring condoms. They must be there, just in case. Second, unless we understand how we might react in an emotional state, we will not be able to predict this transformation. For teenagers, this problem is most likely exacerbated, and thus sex education should focus less on the physiology and biology of the reproductive system and more on strategies to deal with the emotions that accompany sexual arousal. Third, we must admit that carrying condoms and even vaguely understanding the emotional firestorm of sexual arousal may not be enough. There are most likely many situations where teenagers simply won't be able to cope with their emotions. A better strategy, for those who want to guarantee that teenagers avoid sex, is to teach teenagers that they must walk away from the fire of passion before they are close enough to be drawn in. Accepting this advice might not be easy, but our results suggest that it is easier for them to fight temptation before it arises than after it has started to lure them in. In other words, avoiding temptation altogether is easier than overcoming it. To be sure, this sounds a lot like the Just Say No campaign, which urges teenagers to walk away from sex when tempted. But the difference is that Just Say No assumes we can turn off passion at will at any point, whereas our study shows this assumption to be false. If we put aside the debate on the pros and cons of teenage sex, what is clear is that if we want to help teenagers avoid sex, sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancies, we have two strategies. Either we can teach them how to say no before any temptation takes hold and before a situation becomes impossible to resist, or, alternatively, we can get them prepared to deal with the consequences of saying yes in the heat of passion, by carrying a condom, for example. One thing is sure. If we don't teach our young people how to deal with sex when they are half out of their minds, we are not only fooling them, we're fooling ourselves as well. Whatever lessons we teach them, we need to help them understand that they will react differently when they are calm and cool from when their hormones are raging at fever pitch. And, of course, the same also applies to our own behaviour. Safe driving. Similarly, we need to teach teenagers and everyone else not to drive when their emotions are at a boil. It's not just inexperience and hormones that make so many teenagers crash their own and their parents' cars, it's also the car full of laughing friends, with the CD player blaring at an adrenaline-pumping decibel level and the driver's right hand searching for the French fries or his girlfriend's knee. Who's thinking about risk in that situation? Probably no one. A recent study found that a teenager driving alone was 40% more likely to get into an accident than an adult. But with one other teenager in the car, the percentage was twice that and with a third teenager along for the ride, the percentage doubled again. To react to this, we need an intervention that does not rely on the premise that teenagers will remember how they wanted to behave while in a cold state or how their parents wanted them to behave and follow these guidelines even when they are in a hot state. Why not build into cars precautionary devices to foil teenagers' behaviour? Such cars might be equipped with a modified OnStar system that the teenager and the parents configure in a cold state. If a car exceeds 65 miles per hour on the highway, or more than 40 miles per hour in a residential zone, for example, there will be consequences. If the car exceeds the speed limit or begins to make erratic turns, the radio might switch from Tupac to Schumann's Second Symphony. This would slow most teenagers. 
or the car might blast the air conditioning in winter, switch on the heat in summer, or automatically call mum, a real downer, if the driver's friends are present. With these substantial and immediate consequences in mind, then, the driver and his or her friends would realise that it's time for Mr Hyde to move over and let Dr Jekyll drive. This is not at all far-fetched. Modern cars are already full of computers that control the fuel injection, the climate system and the sound system. Cars equipped with OnStar are already linked to a wireless network. With today's technology, it would be a simple matter for a car to automatically call mum. Better life decisions. Not uncommonly, women who are pregnant for the first time tell their doctors before the onset of labour that they will refuse any kind of painkiller. The decision made in their cold state is admirable, but they make this decision when they can't imagine the pain that can come with childbirth, let alone the challenges of child-rearing. After all is said and done, they may wish they'd gone for the epidural. With this in mind, Sumi, my lovely wife, and I, readying ourselves for the birth of our first child, Amit, decided to test our mettle before making any decisions about using an epidural. To do this, Sumi plunged her hands into a bucket of ice for two minutes. We did this on the advice of our birth coach, who swore to us that the resulting pain would be similar to the pain of childbirth, while I coached her breathing. If Sumi was unable to bear the pain of this experience, we figured, she'd probably want painkillers when she was going through the actual birth. After two minutes of holding her hands in the ice bucket, Sumi clearly understood the appeal of an epidural. During the birth itself, any ounce of love Sumi ever had for her husband was completely transferred to the anesthesiologist who produced the epidural at the critical point. With our second child, we made it to the hospital about two minutes before Netta was born, so Sumi did end up experiencing an analgesic-free birth after all. Looking from one emotional state to another is difficult. It's not always possible. And as Sumi learned, it can be painful. But to make informed decisions, we need to somehow experience and understand the emotional state we will be in at the other side of the experience. Learning how to bridge this gap is essential to making some of the important decisions of our lives. It is unlikely that we would move to a different city without asking friends who live there how they like it, or even choose to see a film without reading some reviews. Isn't it strange that we invest so little in learning about both sides of our emotions? Why should we reserve this subject for psychology classes when failure to understand it can bring about repeated failures in many aspects of our lives? We need to explore the two sides of ourselves. We need to understand the cold state and the hot state. We need to see how the gap between the hot and cold states benefits our lives and where it leads us astray. What did our experiment suggest? It may be that our models of human behaviour need to be rethought. There is no such thing as a fully integrated human being. We may, in fact, be an agglomeration of multiple selves. Although there is nothing much we can do to get our Dr Jekyll to fully appreciate the strength of our Mr Hyde, perhaps just being aware that we are prone to making the wrong decisions when gripped by intense emotion may help us in some way to apply our knowledge of our Hyde selves to our daily activities. How can we force our hide self to behave better? This is what the next chapter is about. Chapter 6. The Problem of Procrastination and Self-Control 
why we can't make ourselves do what we want to do. Onto the American scene, populated by big homes, big cars and big screen plasma televisions, comes another big phenomenon. The biggest decline in the personal savings rate since the Great Depression. Go back 25 years and double-digit savings rates were the norm. As recently as 1994, the savings rate was nearly 5%. But by 2006, the savings rate had fallen below zero to negative 1%. Americans were not only not saving, they were spending more than they earned. Europeans do a lot better. They save an average of 20%. Japan's rate is 25%. China's is 50%. So what's up with America? I suppose one answer is that Americans have succumbed to rampant consumerism. Go back to a home built before we had to have everything, for instance, and check out the size of the closets. Our house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for example, was built in 1890. It has no closets whatsoever. Houses in the 1940s had closets barely big enough to stand in. The closet of the 1970s was a bit larger, perhaps deep enough for a fondue pot, a box of eight-track tapes, and a few disco dresses. But the closet of today is a different breed. Walk-in closet means that you can literally walk in for quite a distance. And no matter how deep these closets are, Americans have found ways to fill them right up to the closet door. Another answer, the other half of the problem, is the recent explosion in consumer credit. The average American family now has six credit cards. In 2005 alone, Americans received six billion direct mail solicitations for credit cards. Frighteningly, the average family debt on these cards is about $9,000 and seven in ten households borrow on credit cards to cover such basic living expenses as food, utilities, and clothing. So wouldn't it just be wiser if Americans learned to save, as in the old days, and as the rest of the world does, by diverting some cash to the cookie jar and delaying some purchases until we can really afford them? Why can't we save part of our paychecks as we know we should? Why can't we resist these new purchases? Why can't we exert some good old-fashioned self-control? The road to hell, they say, is paved with good intentions, and most of us know what that's all about. We promise to save for retirement, but we spend the money on a vacation. We vow to diet, but we surrender to the allure of the dessert cart. We promise to have our cholesterol checked regularly, and then we cancel our appointment. How much do we lose when our fleeting impulses deflect us from our long-term goals? How much is our health affected by those missed appointments and our lack of exercise? How much is our wealth reduced when we forget our vow to save more and consume less? Why do we lose the fight against procrastination so frequently? In the previous chapter, we discussed how emotions grab hold of us and make us view the world from a different perspective. Procrastination, from the Latin pro, meaning for, and crass, meaning tomorrow, is rooted in the same kind of problem. When we promise to save our money, we are in a cool state. When we promise to exercise and watch our diet, again, we're cool. But then the lava flow of hot emotion comes rushing in. Just when we promise to save, we see a new car, a mountain bike, or a pair of shoes that we must have. Just when we plan to exercise regularly, we find a reason to sit all day in front of the television. And as for the diet, I'll take that slice of chocolate cake and begin the diet in earnest tomorrow.
Keeping up on our long-term goals for immediate gratification, my friends, is procrastination. As a university professor, I'm all too familiar with procrastination. At the beginning of every semester, my students make heroic promises to themselves, vowing to read their assignments on time, submit their papers on time, and in general stay on top of things. And every semester I've watched as temptation takes them out on a date, over to the student union for a meeting, and off on a ski trip in the mountains, while their workload falls farther and farther behind. In the end, they wind up impressing me not with their punctuality, but with their creativity, inventing stories, excuses, and family tragedies to explain their tardiness. Why do family tragedies generally occur during the last two weeks of the semester? After I'd been teaching at MIT for a few years, my colleague, Klaus Wertenbroch, a professor at INSEAD, a business school with campuses in France and Singapore, and I decided to work up a few studies that might get to the root of the problem and just maybe offer a fix for this common human weakness. Our guinea pigs this time would be the delightful students in my class on consumer behaviour. As they settled into their chairs that first morning, full of anticipation, and no doubt with resolutions to stay on top of their class assignments, the students listened to me review the syllabus for the course. There would be three main papers over the 12-week semester, I explained. Together, these papers would constitute much of their final grade. And what are the deadlines? asked one of them, waving his hand from the back. I smiled. You can hand in the papers at any time before the end of the semester, I replied. It's entirely up to you. The students looked back blankly. Here's the deal, I explained. By the end of the week, you must commit to a deadline date for each paper. Once you set your deadlines, they can't be changed. Late papers, I added, would be penalised at the rate of 1% off the grade for each day late. The students could always turn in their papers before their deadlines without penalty, of course, but since I wouldn't be reading any of them until the end of the semester, there would be no particular advantage in terms of grades for doing so. In other words, the ball was in their court. Would they have the self-control to play the game? But Professor Ariely asked Gurev, a clever master's student with a charming Indian accent. Given these instructions and incentives, wouldn't it make sense for us to select the last date possible? You can do that, I replied. If you find that it makes sense, by all means do it. Under these conditions, what would you have done? I promised to submit paper one on week blank. I promised to submit paper two on week blank. I promised to submit paper three on week blank. What deadlines did the students pick for themselves? A perfectly rational student would follow Gurev's advice and set all the deadlines for the last day of class. After all, it was always possible to submit papers earlier without a penalty, so why take a chance and select an earlier deadline than needed? Delaying the deadlines to the end was clearly the best decision if students were perfectly rational. But what if the students are not rational? What if they succumb to temptation and are prone to procrastination? What if they realise their weakness? If the students are not rational, and they know it, they could use the deadlines to force themselves to behave better. They could set early deadlines, and by doing so, force themselves to start working on the projects earlier in the semester. What did my students do? They used the scheduling tool I provided them with, and spaced the timing of their papers across the whole semester. 
This is fine and good, as it suggests that the students realise their problems with procrastination and that if given the right opportunities, they try to control themselves. But the main question is whether the tool was indeed helpful in improving their grades. To find out about this, we had to conduct other variations of the same experiments in other classes and compare the quality of the papers across the different conditions, classes. Now that I had Gurev and his classmates choosing their individual deadlines, I went to my other two classes, with markedly different deals. In the second class, I told the students that they would have no deadlines at all during the semester. They merely needed to submit their papers at the end of the last class. They could turn the papers in early, of course, but there was no great benefit to doing so. I suppose they should have been happy. I had given them complete flexibility and freedom of choice. Not only that, but they also had the lowest risk of being penalised by missing an intermediate deadline. The third class received what might be called a dictatorial treatment. I dictated three deadlines for the three papers, set at the fourth, eighth and twelfth weeks. These were my marching orders and they left no room for choice or flexibility. Of these three classes, which do you think achieved the best final grades? Was it Gurev and his classmates, who had some flexibility? Or the second class, which had a single deadline at the end and thus complete flexibility? Or the third class, which had its deadlines dictated from above and therefore had no flexibility? Which class do you predict did worst? When the semester was over, Jose Silva, the teaching assistant for the classes, himself an expert on procrastination and currently a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, returned the papers to the students. We could at last compare the grades across the three different deadline conditions. We found that the students in the class with the three firm deadlines got the best grades. The class in which I set no deadlines at all, except for the final deadline, had the worst grades. And the class in which Gorov and his classmates were allowed to choose their own three deadlines, but with penalties for failing to meet them, finished in the middle, in terms of their grades for the three papers and their final grade. What do these results suggest? First, that students do procrastinate. Big news. And second, that tightly restricting their freedom, equally spaced deadlines imposed from above, is the best cure for procrastination. But the biggest revelation is that simply offering the students a tool by which they could pre-commit to deadlines helped them achieve better grades. What this finding implies is that the students generally understood their problem with procrastination and took action to fight it when they were given the opportunity to do so, achieving relative success in improving their grades. But why were the grades in the self-imposed deadlines condition not as good as the grades in the dictatorial, externally imposed deadlines condition. My feeling is this. Not everyone understands their tendency to procrastinate. And even those who do recognize their tendency to procrastinate may not understand their problem completely. Yes, people may set deadlines for themselves, but not necessarily the deadlines that are best for getting the best performance. When I looked at the deadline set by the students in Gurev's class, this was indeed the case. Although the vast majority of the students in this class spaced their deadlines substantially and got grades that were as good as those earned by students in the dictatorial condition, some did not space their deadlines much, and a few did not space their deadlines at all. The students who did not space their deadlines sufficiently pulled the average grades of this class down. 
without properly spaced deadlines, deadlines that would have forced the students to start working on their papers earlier in the semester, the final work was generally rushed and poorly written, even without the extra penalty of 1% off the grade for each day of delay. Interestingly, these results suggest that although almost everyone has problems with procrastination, those who recognize and admit their weakness are in a better position to utilize available tools for pre-commitment and by doing so help themselves overcome it. So that was my experience with my students. What does it have to do with everyday life? A lot, I think. Resisting temptation and instilling self-control are general human goals, and repeatedly failing to achieve them is a source of much of our misery. When I look around, I see people trying their best to do the right thing, whether they are dieters vowing to avoid a tempting dessert tray, or families vowing to spend less and save more. The struggle for control is all around us. We see it in books and magazines. Radio and television airwaves are choked with messages of self-improvement and help. And yet, for all this electronic chatter and focus in print, we find ourselves again and again in the same predicament as my students, failing over and over to reach our long-term goals. Why? Because without pre-commitments, we keep on falling for temptation. What's the alternative? From the experiments that I have described above, the most obvious conclusion is that when an authoritative, external voice gives the orders, most of us will jump to attention. After all, the students for whom I set the deadlines, for whom I provided the parental voice, did best. Of course, barking orders, while very effective, may not always be feasible or desirable. What's a good compromise? It seems that the best course might be to give people an opportunity to commit up front to their preferred path of action. This approach might not be as effective as the dictatorial treatment, but it can help push us in the right direction, perhaps even more so if we train people to do it and give them experience in setting their own deadlines. What's the bottom line? We have problems with self-control, related to immediate and delayed gratification, no doubt there. But each of the problems we face has potential self-control mechanisms as well. If we can't save from our paycheck, we can take advantage of our employer's automatic deduction option. If we don't have the will to exercise regularly alone, we can make an appointment to exercise in the company of our friends. These are the tools that we can commit to in advance, and they may help us be the kind of people we want to be. What other procrastination problems might pre-commitment mechanisms solve? Consider healthcare and consumer debt. Healthcare. Everyone knows that preventive medicine is generally more cost-effective for both individuals and society than our current remedial approach. Prevention means getting health exams on a regular basis before problems develop. But having a colonoscopy or mammogram is an ordeal. Even a cholesterol check, which requires blood to be drawn, is unpleasant. So while our long-term health and longevity depends on undergoing such tests, in the short term we procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate. But can you imagine if we all got the required health exams on time? Think how many serious health problems could be caught if they were diagnosed early. Think how much cost could be cut from healthcare spending and how much misery would be saved in the process. 
So how do we fix this problem? Well, we could have a dictatorial solution in which the state, in the Orwellian sense, would dictate our regular checkups. That approach worked well with my students who were given a deadline and performed well. In society, no doubt, we would all be healthier if the health police arrived in a van and took procrastinators to the Ministry of Cholesterol Control for blood tests. This may seem extreme, but think of the other dictates that society imposes on us for our own good. We may receive tickets for jaywalking or for having our seatbelts unsecured. No one thought 20 years ago that smoking would be banned in most public buildings across America, as well as in restaurants and bars. But today it is, with a hefty fine incurred for lighting up. And now we have the movement against trans fats. Should people be deprived of heart-clogging French fries? Sometimes we strongly support regulations that restrain our self-destructive behaviours, and at other times we have equally strong feelings about our personal freedom. Either way, it's always a trade-off. But if mandatory health checkups won't be accepted by the public, what about a middle ground, like the self-imposed deadlines I gave to Gurev and his classmates, the deadlines that offered personal choice but also had penalties attached for the procrastinators? This might be the perfect compromise between authoritarianism on the one hand and what we have too often in preventive health today, complete freedom to fail. Suppose your doctor tells you that you need to get your cholesterol checked. That means fasting the night before the blood test, driving to the lab the next morning without breakfast, sitting in a crowded reception room for what seems like hours, and finally having the nurse come and get you so that she can stick a needle into your arm. Facing those prospects, you immediately begin to procrastinate. But suppose the doctor charged you an upfront $100 deposit for the test, refundable only if you showed up promptly at the appointed time. Would you be more likely to show up for the test? What if the doctor asked you if you would like to pay this $100 deposit for the test? Would you accept this self-imposed challenge? And if you did, would it make you more likely to show up for the procedure? Suppose the procedure was more complicated, a colonoscopy, for instance. Would you be willing to commit to a $200 deposit, refundable only if you arrived at the appointment on time? If so, you will have replicated the condition that I offered Gorev's class, a condition that certainly motivated the students to be responsible for their own decisions. How else could we defeat procrastination in healthcare? Suppose we could repackage most of our medical and dental procedures so that they were predictable and easily done. Let me tell you a story that illustrates this idea. Several years ago, Ford Motor Company struggled to find the best way to get car owners back into the dealerships for routine automobile maintenance. The problem was that the standard Ford automobile had something like 18,000 parts that might need servicing and unfortunately they didn't all need servicing at the same time. One Ford engineer determined that a particular axle bolt needed inspection every 3,602 miles. And this was just part of the problem. Since Ford had more than 20 vehicle types, plus various model years, the servicing of them all was nearly impossible to ponder. All that consumers, as well as service advisors, could do was page through volumes of thick manuals in order to determine what services were needed. But Ford began to notice something over at the Honda dealerships. Even though the 18,000 or so parts in Honda cars had the same ideal maintenance schedules as the Ford cars, Honda had lumped them all into three engineering intervals, 
For instance, every six months or 5,000 miles, every year or 10,000 miles, and every two years or 25,000 miles. This list was displayed on the wall of the reception room in the service department. All the hundreds of service activities were boiled down to simple, mileage-based service events that were common across all vehicles and model years. The board had every maintenance service activity bundled, sequenced and priced. Anyone could see when service was due and how much it would cost. But the bundle board was more than convenient information. It was a true procrastination buster as it instructed customers to get their service done at specific times and mileages. It guided them along. And it was so simple that any customer could understand it. Customers were no longer confused. They no longer procrastinated. Servicing their Hondas on time was easy. Some people at Ford thought this was a great idea, but at first the Ford engineers fought it. They had to be convinced that yes, drivers could go 9,000 miles without an oil change, but that 5,000 miles would align the oil change with everything else that needed to be done. They had to be convinced that a Mustang and an F-250 Super Duty truck, despite their technological differences, could be put on the same maintenance schedule. They had to be convinced that rebundling their 18,000 maintenance options into three easily scheduled service events, making maintenance as easy as ordering a value meal at McDonald's, was not bad engineering, but good customer service, not to mention good business. The winning argument, in fact, was that it is better to have consumers service their vehicles at somewhat compromised intervals than not to service them at all. In the end, it happened. Ford joined Honda in bundling its services. Procrastination stopped. Ford's service bay, which had been 40% vacant, filled up. The dealers made money, and in just three years, Ford matched Honda's success in the service bay. So couldn't we make comprehensive physicals and tests as simple? And with the addition of self-imposed financial penalties, or better, a parental voice, bring the quality of our health way up and at the same time make the overall costs significantly less? The lesson to learn from Ford's experience is that bundling our medical tests and procedures so that people remember to do them is far smarter than adhering to an erratic series of health commands that people are unwilling to follow. And so the big question, can we shape America's medical morass and make it as easy as ordering a Happy Meal? Thoreau wrote, simplify, simplify. And indeed, simplification is one mark of real genius. Savings. We could order people to stop spending, as an Orwellian edict. This would be similar to the case of my third group of students, for whom the deadline was dictated by me. But are there cleverer ways to get people to monitor their own spending? A few years ago, for instance, I heard about the ice glass method for reducing credit card spending. It's a home remedy for impulsive spending. You put your credit card into a glass of water and put the glass in the freezer. Then, when you impulsively decide to make a purchase, you must first wait for the ice to thaw before extracting the card. By then, your compulsion to purchase has subsided. You can't just put the card in the microwave, of course, because then you'd destroy the magnetic strip. But here's another approach that is arguably better and certainly more up-to-date. John Leland wrote a very interesting article in the New York Times in which he described a growing trend of self-shame. 
When a woman who calls herself Tricia discovered last week that she owed $22,302 on her credit cards, she could not wait to spread the news. Tricia, 29, does not talk to her family or friends about her finances and says she is ashamed of her personal debt. Yet from the laundry room of her home in northern Michigan, Tricia does something that would have been unthinkable and impossible a generation ago. She goes online and posts intimate details of her financial life, including her net worth, now a negative $38,691, the balance and finance charges on her credit cards, and the amount of debt she has paid down, $15,312, since starting the blog about her debt last year. It is also clear that Trisha's blog was part of a larger trend. Apparently, there were dozens of websites, maybe there are thousands by now, devoted to the same kind of debt blogging, from poorerthanyou.com and whereindebt.com to makelovenotdebt.com and Trisha's webpage, bloggingawaydebt.com. Leland noted, Consumers are asking others to help themselves develop self-control because so many companies are not showing any restraint. Blogging about overspending is important and useful, but as we saw in the previous chapter on emotions, what we truly need is a method to curb our consumption at the moment of temptation, rather than a way to complain about it after the fact. What could we do? Could we create something that replicated the conditions of Gurev's class with some freedom of choice but built-in boundaries as well? I began to imagine a credit card of a different kind, a self-control credit card that would let people restrict their own spending behaviour. The users could decide in advance how much money they wanted to spend in each category, in every store, and in every time frame. For instance, users could limit their spending on coffee to $20 every week, and their spending on clothing to $600 every six months. Cardholders could fix their limit for groceries at $200 a week, and their entertainment spending at $60 a month, and not allow any spending on candy between 2 and 5 p.m. What would happen if they surpassed the limit? The cardholders would select their penalties. For instance, they could make the card get rejected, or they could tax themselves and transfer the tax to Habitat for Humanity, a friend, or long-term savings. This system could also implement the ice glass method as a cooling-off period for large items, and it could even automatically trigger an email to your spouse, your mother, or a friend. Dear Sumi, this email is to draw your attention to the fact that your husband, Dan Ariely, who is generally an upright citizen, has exceeded his spending limit on chocolate of $50 per month by $73.25. With best wishes, the self-control credit card team. Now, this may sound like a pipe dream, but it isn't. Think about the potential of smart cards. Thin, palm-sized cards that carry impressive computational powers, which are beginning to fill the market. These cards offer the possibility of being customized to each individual's credit needs and helping people manage their credit wisely. Why couldn't a card, for instance, have a spending governor, like the governors that limit the top speed on engines, to limit monetary transactions in particular conditions? Why couldn't they have the financial equivalent of a time-release pill so that consumers could program their cards to dispense their credit to help them behave as they hope they would? A few years ago, I was so convinced that a self-control credit card was a good idea that I asked for a meeting with one of the major banks. 
To my delight, this venerable bank responded and suggested that I come to its corporate headquarters in New York. I arrived in New York a few weeks later and, after a brief delay at the reception desk, was led into a modern conference room. Peering through the plate glass from on high, I could look down on Manhattan's financial district and a stream of yellow cabs pushing through the rain. Within a few minutes, the room had filled with half a dozen high-powered banking executives, including the head of the bank's credit card division. I began by describing how procrastination causes everyone problems. In the realm of personal finance, I said, it causes us to neglect our savings, while the temptation of easy credit fills our closets with goods that we really don't need. It didn't take long before I saw that I was striking a very personal chord with each of them. Then I began to describe how Americans have fallen into a terrible dependence on credit cards, how the debt is eating them alive, and how they are struggling to find their way out of this predicament. America's seniors are one of the hardest-hit groups. In fact, from 1992 to 2004, the rate of debt of Americans aged 55 and over rose faster than that of any other group. Some of them were even using credit cards to fill the gaps in their Medicare. Others were at risk of losing their homes. I began to feel like George Bailey begging for loan forgiveness in It's a Wonderful Life. The executives began to speak up. Most of them had stories of relatives, spouses and friends, not themselves, of course, who had had problems with credit debt. We talked it over. Now the ground was ready, and I started describing the self-control credit card idea as a way to help consumers spend less and save more. But first, I think the bankers were a bit stunned. I was suggesting that they help consumers control their spending. Did I realize that the bankers and credit card companies made $17 billion a year in interest from these cards? Hello? They should give that up? Well, I wasn't that naive. I explained to the bankers that there was a great business proposition behind the idea of a self-control card. Look, I said, the credit card business is cutthroat. You send out six billion direct mail pieces a year, and all the card offers are about the same. Reluctantly, they agreed. But suppose one credit card company stepped out of the pack, I continued, and identified itself as a good guy, as an advocate for the credit-crunched consumer. Suppose one company had the guts to offer a card that would actually help consumers control their credit, and better still, divert some of their money into long-term savings. I glanced around the room. My bet is that thousands of consumers would cut up their other credit cards and sign up with you. A wave of excitement crossed the room. The bankers nodded their heads and chatted to one another. It was revolutionary. Soon thereafter, we all departed. They shook my hand warmly and assured me that we would be talking again soon. Well, they never called me back. It might have been that they were worried about losing the $17 billion in interest charges, or maybe it was just good old procrastination. But the idea is still there, a self-controlled credit card, and maybe one day someone will take the next step.